Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 231. It's titled, What Determines How Much You Make? Pearl and I have been in Mexico in Tulum for the past week. We're staying at a 28-room boutique hotel. Just steps from the beach, and there is a, a gentleman who I've met, had a number of conversations with. His name is One. He is the security guard on the beach. He's essentially guarding these seven buildings, 28 rooms. He's making sure, I'm not actually sure what he's protecting us against. Certainly at night, perhaps it makes sense. But during the day, it just doesn't really make any sense. But that's what he does. And I talked to him about his job, asked him, do you like it? He says, more or less. I, I could tell he's bored. He works 12-hour shifts, gets two meals, a day, two meals a day as part or two breaks, 30-minute breaks. They give him some food. And then every eight days, he switches from the day to the night shift. During the time when they transition from day to night, they work 24 straight hours. He typically works two to three months, and then he returns to his home, which is in Chiapas. Chiapas de Corso is the name of the town where he lives. Now, Onay lived in Maryland for a while in the United States, working at a hotel, but had to return because a family member was sick and wasn't able to get back in. Onay asked me, why does he and other Mexicans make so little money? Yes, is the owner of the hotel keeping all the money? I tried to explain a little bit what I, I discussed in episode 142 on why are some nations wealthier than others. We discussed the impact of productivity, of investment, technology. But Une brings up some good questions, and I want to kind of revisit some of what I covered in that episode and also look at it from just uh, just certain occupations. Why do certain occupations pay more? Why does an engineer make more than a teacher and a teacher more than a security guard? Why do the same occupation pay different in different countries? Or even within the same city in a given country, why is it that sometimes an engineer makes way more at one company versus another company. First, just occupations. What drives the salary for one occupation versus another? It comes down to some basic economic principles, supply and demand. Professions where there is a reduced supply or less of a supply of workers, because there's high barriers of entry in order to get in, you need the appropriate credentials, the education, they're going to have less workers. And if there's demand there for that particular service, then all things being equal, the pay for that particular occupation will be more. There are a lot of people, especially here in Tulum, coming up from Chiapas, willing to work as security guards. You don't need a, a huge amount of education. Whereas if you want to be a doctor in this part of Mexico, you're going to make make more because it takes more skill. Kim Whedon 
wrote an article in the, for the American Journal of Sociology. It's, it's titled, Why Do Some Occupations Pay More Than Others? Social Closure and Earnings Inequality in the United States. And she talks about these closure practices, these, these barriers that essentially generate restrictions on the labor supply. And the examples are licensing, educational credentialing, voluntary certification, association representation, and unionization. Essentially, things that keep the supply of workers down. And that, that's the primary reason why one occupation pays less than another occupation. A second reason some occupations pay more than others is scalability and perceived value. April and I were driving last week. We had gone to a museum in the Yucatan. It was a museum of, of the caste wars about the Mayan uprisings in the 19th century. And we were driving toward Valladolid. And we were about 10 miles south of a village called Tishkakalkupul. It's a Mayan name. And there was a, a campesino, a, a worker. He had a huge bag of corn. And he, he waved us down. He wanted a ride. And when you're that far out, we stopped. And we put his, his huge bag of corn in, in the trunk. And we drove him. And a little bit later, we picked up another field worker and took them into Tishkakulkupul. They offered us 10 pesos for the ride. I mean, we, we said no. But what's interesting is that's not a very scalable career. He has his cornfield 10 miles south of town. He walked to get there. He, th the bag was too heavy to walk back. And there's just, there's value there. He, he's adding value. But you compare that to a hedge fund manager where it isn't so much the value, although the perceived value is there. We're not talking about absolute value. In some ways, there's more value to be able to grow your own corn than it is to, to manage a hedge fund. But the financialization of just business in general, the ability to manage one portfolio and to scale it across hundreds of clients and to take 2% fee and 20% of the profits, that's highly scalable, which means everyone that works for a hedge fund or just anywhere in the financial services. It's scalable in terms of the ability to generate revenue. Now, there's also this issue of a perceived value. A teacher can realistically handle 10 to 20 students, the teacher-to-student the teacher ratio. But then it comes to what are we willing to pay as taxpayers for teachers? What can we afford? I was thinking about the, the financials of a daycare Daycare, the average cost of daycare in the U.S. is, is $4,000 per year to $18,000 per year. If you have 20 kids in your daycare and they're, they're, you're charging $4,000, that's only $80,000 in revenue, and which is not much to, to run a business. Pay yourself, pay for your building, et cetera. So part of the amount that we get paid depends on how scalable it is in terms of the ability to, to generate revenue and, and to be compensated for that. And it comes down to what are others willing to pay to support that business. Bonet had asked about the hotel owner and whether he was taking the, the vast majority of the profits. 
And it's hard to say, as I've tried to understand the economics of this hotel, the area where we're at, there's no electricity. So everything is run by generators. And as I mentioned, there's there's 28 rooms that I have counted, not including the restaurant, which I believe is a separate business, 20 to 25 workers. But the hotel owner has some definite risk there. Operating this particular property in Mexico, this stretch of beach has has been, there's, they've had a lot of issues in terms of property rights. Who actually has a deed to operate a building? There have been hotels closed down suddenly because their, their right to, to operate, their deed just what, it wasn't there, it wasn't protected. Another challenge of running a hotel here, this is from an LA Times article in September, sargassum. This is a, a type of algae that is threatening the the beaches of the Caribbean. Uh, it's, a, it's an algae that supports birds and sea life in the open ocean. But as global warming has happened, we're, you're seeing a greater spread of this algae and it's breaking off. And it's, it's you might have heard of the Sargasso Sea. Well, there's another huge sea that has formed off Brazil just made of this sargassum. As these weed blocks essentially break off and head to shore. As they start to decay, the article points out they emit hydrogen sulfide fumes that can kill fish, coral, and seagrass. They have gotten a lot of bad publicity because of the sargassum, and the workers work. They're out there twice a day getting rid of the sargassum. And now, this particular time that we're here, it's not really been that bad, but during the spring and summer, it, it ruined people's vacations, and that's a threat to the, the operator of this hotel in terms of his risk, the capital that he has at risk. So those are two reasons why one occupation pays more than the other. It's certainly supply and demand and things that are in place, closures that prevent or reduce the supply in terms of just the necessary certification to qualify for a career as well as other structures that might be in place that you have to pass a test, for example, to do it. And then there's the scalability and perceived value. But what about one country versus another? Which is sort of one of of Volney's questions as he looks at what he's paid, perhaps as a security guard versus security guard in another country. Think about, again, this Campesino that we picked up that had... I don't know how big his plot was, but when you look at it, and I talked about this with Oney, we talked about what percent of the population of Mexico works in farming. Oney said it was 80%, and it turns out it's actually 13%. 26% of workers in the world are employed in agriculture. 13% of Mexican workers are in agriculture, and only 2% of U.S. workers Yucatan's not a great place to grow corn. I found one study, and I'll link to it in the show notes. In 2011, this is in the municipality of Yashkaba, their average production was 0.69 tons of maize, or corn, per hectare, or 100 acres. Compare that to the U.S., 10 tons per hectare. So almost more than 10 times the amount is produced per 100 acres in the U.S. than in Yucatan. And that gets to the point of why a job in one country can pay way more than another country. It comes down to productivity. 
the ability to produce, how much output is produced per worker, and an income per worker is a function of that output per worker. There was a, a really interesting paper by James Guartney, Hugo Montesinos, and Joe Connors. It was titled The Rise and Fall of Worldwide Income Inequality, 1820 to 2035. And they talked about the development process that occurs in a country, and they list out four phases. One is pre-development. The second is initial growth. The third is improved productivity. And the fourth is receding growth. And so all things being constant, that the growth per capita will be higher in, in that second and third phase, the initial growth and the improved productivity. And then as we have receding growth, that essentially the GDP per capita, the output per capita, shrinks. They point out that from really 1820 to 1950, growth per capita income was slow in most of the world because most countries were in this sort of this pre-development period. But there were 20 countries from 1820 to 1950 that were mostly in Western Europe, North America, and what they describe as Oceania. And they moved out of phase one and grew more rapidly than the rest of the world. So they were in phase two. And that increased income inequality. But between 1960 and 2000, an increasing share of the developing countries moved into phase two and achieved growth rates similar to high-income countries. An example would be China. And that has led to a slowing rise in inequality. Then they point out that by, from 2000 to 2015, most of the developing countries have moved into phases two and three where growth rates were higher and the high-income countries were sliding into phase four, where income per capita is, is slowing. And that has resulted in an even sharper reduction in worldwide inequality. They point out then that continuing favorable demographics, lower cost of transportation and communications, and improvements in institutions, increases in human capital, and progress against malaria are accelerating growth in developing countries. And that, that ongoing growth will mean less income inequality globally. And, and, and so that's good news for somebody like One or, or One's children and grandchildren. As Mexico continues to develop, its economy grows faster. And as a result, the income per worker goes up. So Overall pay goes up because of greater productivity among the companies that make up that particular area. In addition, it, this study talks about the, the infrastructure, transportation. What does it cost to move products? It's hard to move products when there's a lot of holes in the road. And, and some of our driving in the Yucatan, some of the, the roads we were on just, just were not very good. Others were, were much better. But that gridlock or just not having the infrastructure – the communications infrastructure. I mentioned where we're staying. The internet's not just not good because everything's it's run on a generator. Now this is kind of a unique stretch of ground. You know, most of Tulum, the town, etc., has electricity, but this particular stre stretch it just doesn't, and and it shows. It's it's harder to to, to grow your business, run your business when you don't have good infrastructure. Another thing that impacts the how much you get paid in one country for a given 
occupation versus another is just freedom. And, and my son Brett's been looking at economic freedom and found some studies by two conservative think tanks. One is the Fraser Institute in Canada. The other is the Heritage Foundation. And they do annual reports and they measure effectively the, the freedom of a given country, the size of government, the legal system in terms of property rights, how sound their money is in terms of inflation, their ability to trade internationally, and other regulations. And they're very similar. They'll have sub-indices, and again, I'll link to them. If you remember my free insider's guide, you'll have gotten the show notes that I'm, I'm sharing with you in this episode and a lot of show notes this episode. You can sign up for that at moneyfortherestofus.com. Part of that insider's guide is you get a, a summary or an essay I do each week. Some of the best writing I do each week just goes to that email list. So please, please go ahead and sign up. But here's what Fraser Institute lists as the top six countries. So this is an order of freedom. Hong Kong, Singapore, New Zealand, Switzerland, Ireland, and the U.S. U.S. is number six. Canada is number 10. Mexico is number 82. So much less freedom. In terms of the, the Heritage Foundation, their top six are Hong Kong, Singapore, New Zealand, Switzerland, Australia, and Ireland. Canada is number nine. U.S., they, they rank as 18. Mexico is 64. There's a linkage. There's a paper by J Jacob Dehan and John Egbert Stern where they've looked at these economic freedom measures and determined that there is definitely a relationship between economic freedom and economic growth. Countries that are more free generally have higher economic growth. Before we look at why jobs in one company in a given city pay more than the same job at a different company in the same city, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. What do companies like Ring, Hint, and Tagovas all have in common? They all use NetSuite to accelerate their growth. Successful companies know that in order to grow faster, you must have the right tools. Whether you're doing a million, 10 million, or hundreds of millions in revenue, NetSuite by Oracle gives you the tools you need to accelerate your growth. With NetSuite, you get a full picture of your business, finance, inventory, HR, customers, and more. It's everything you need to grow all in one place, right from your phone or computer. NetSuite will give you the visibility and control you need to make the right decisions and grow with confidence. That's why NetSuite customers grow faster than the S&P 500. NetSuite is the world's number one cloud business system, trusted by more than 19,000 companies. It's the last system you'll ever need. Schedule your free product tour right now and receive your free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, at netsuite.com slash david. That's netsuite.com slash david, netsuite.com slash david. Now, looking at how job, the same job, seems to pay more for one company versus another, even though they're in the same city, there's a paper by Iona Marinescu and Ronald Waldhoff, came out in November 2016, titled Why Some Jobs Pay More Than Others, The Key Role of Job Titles. And, and they went, I think it was Career Builder, looked at thousands of jobs, the classifications, the titles, and determined... Sometimes the pay difference is because it's actually a different job. Maybe this it's the same job, 
or standard occupational classification. But there, there's differences in terms of maybe one says manager or, or there's something about the job title that suggests that it should pay more, again, depending on the supply and demand and the skills. So part of it is maybe the job title, or it is the job title, but it isn't just that. Another paper, this is by Jason Furman and Peter Orsag. It's called Slower Productivity and Higher Income, Higher Inequality, Are They Related? They point out that, and here's the quote, within labor income, the rise in inequality is largely between the average workers at different firms or establishments rather than between workers within firms. And this was researched by Barth from 2016 and Song. They had a paper. They go on. For example, we have not seen CEO pay rise relative to median worker pay in the past 20 years. Instead, all of the workers at successful companies like Google and Goldman Sachs are being paid more relative to all the workers at less successful companies. And, and they give the example uh, of janitors. In a more profitable company, there tends to be sharing uh, of the spoils, that everyone are, are paid more at more successful companies. And so you do see that. There are differences in pay across the occupational, well, I guess against all occupations, really, that are found within a given company. If the company is more profitable, they tend to pay more. And that's important to realize. And it's not so much pay discrimination. Well, I'm sure it does exist. It's not as rampant or it is not a, a big of a causation factor than just the fact that more profitable companies pay more. Now, what's interesting, and this, this goes back to episode 222, why we overpay and how it contributes to income inequality. Generally speaking, I mean, companies are more profitable because they have been, they're more productive. They, they have higher profit margins. But it isn't just that anymore. And that's what episode 222 is. Partly it is, it's our decision as consumers is there's much greater consolidation within the different sectors uh, of the market. And there's the power of brands, our, our desire to, to, we tend to pay more for brands that we're comfortable with. And as a result, you have increasing market share for existing companies. And, and one of the risk is that as you have more concentration, there's less competition and there's m less pressure to innovate. And so while more profitable companies pay more now, it's, it's unclear whether they'll be able to continue. Will they see the increase in, in profits going forward if they're not investing in, in their workers, in new initiatives? For Sag and Furman, reference a number of papers, including one by Gutierrez and Philippon, where they show that governments, including common ownership and reduced competition, can account for the majority of underinvestment since the early 2000s and that most of the decline in investment comes from the leading firms in the industry. So less investment by because of more concentration, because essentially firms get big and happy, and they're just not investing as much. And then another, this is another quote by Furman and Orzag. They, they say, or write, at the same time, just about everywhere you look at the economy, there is less dyna, not dynamism, fluidity, and churn. There's just there's less business formations. 
And firms are larger and older today than they were in the past. And, and we talked about that in episode two. Well, actually, that was in 219, the incredible shrinking stock market. And so that, it, it comes down to occupations pay more at some companies versus the same occupation in another company due to higher profits for that company, sometimes because they're just more productive, and that's a good thing. Sometimes it's because there's just industry concentration, and they've been able to keep competition at bay. But there are definitely differences in terms of what one country makes, occupations in a, a richer company country that's, that's further along in their development cycle versus a, a less rich company or country. And the economic freedom has a lot to do with that, the, the communication, the infrastructure. But sometimes it's just the development cycle. And the other countries and the workers will get there over time. Now, when it comes to our employment, what do we do? I mean, because there's, there's definitely threats. We want what really high barriers to entry for ourselves. We want to be unique. So there's just one of us. The best way to, to make sure you, you get paid well is because people want to hire you. Certainly maybe because you're a certain occupation, but within that occupation, they want to hire you. You have the reputation. You have the network. I just read a fascinating book by Albert Laszlo Barabasi. I read it while we were on this trip to Tulum. It's called The Formula, The Universal Laws to Success. And he points out that performance doesn't scale. When you look at different performance of one elite athlete to another, and they win by just a little bit. And even a non-elite athlete or any, any particular skill, the performance that's produced isn't that dramatically different, especially compared to the success. So success scales because you have the, the network effect. But what we can take away from that is if we build a network and if we're unique in what we do, we don't have to be multiples better than somebody else. We just have to be a little bit better in what we do and stand out a little bit more. So people want to hire us for what we do. And that's ultimately how you're able to control, have control over how much you get paid because people want to hire you for you. So that's episode 231. As I mentioned, show notes are at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I'm not considered your specific risk profile, not provided investment advice, simply general education on money, investing in the economy. Have a great week. 